Jesus' name, amen, amen. Go ahead and be seated. So glad to have you with us today at Center Point Christian Church. Welcome. Someday, someday spring's going to come back. Or someday it's going to arrive. But there is good news in our city. Who watched the girls win the volleyball game last night? Was that not fun? That was fun. We needed some good news in the midst of all the craziness and COVID and everything. And UK women's volleyball brought some fun and some good news. Exciting that is. Take your phones out, if you will and scan this QR code. This is something we've been doing every week in this new COVID world that we live in. This is our bulletin. So when you walk in, you don't receive a paper bulletin. So that QR code is around a in some different places in the church as well, so you don't have to wait until we put it on the screen. But you scan that, and it brings up some options there. One option is new here. If you're new here, we'd love to get to know you. Just click that and fill out a little bit of information. Uh, it'll start a relationship for us to get to know you and make some connections. And again, if you're new here, we don't think you're here by accident. We think God brought you here, and we're glad that you are here today. There's an option to give an offering or share a prayer request, and then some other different ministry things that are going on, our growth guide, what's happening, all that stuff there. That's just a mobile bulletin. But there's a couple things I do want to draw our attention to. Because as we're coming back together, there's some new ministries or some, some ministries we've had in the past that are ramping up. One is our generosity feeds. That is coming up here very soon, May the 15th. I want to encourage you to be signing up. We're doing two waves of that. We're doing it here at the building, but two waves so we can keep the number of people down a little bit. We can spread out. We're still going to pack 10,000 meals this year, so I want to encourage you to participate in that. We are getting ready for kids camp. Kids camp is going to come in June. We need lots of volunteers. Becky, would you stand up for a moment? This is Becky Haslock, in case you don't know her. She'll be at that beautiful table out in the lobby that you probably saw when you walked in, big full of balloons, all space themed. Stop and talk to her and say, hey, where can I volunteer? Where can I get plugged in? She can help you get connected with that. And then I'm really excited. I told you last week registration was going to open because our Grace Marriage Ministry is reopening and May 22 and August 28th are the dates of those. Mike and Sarah Brown, I see you're here. Would you all stand up real quick? This is Mike and Sarah Brown. They oversee the Grace Marriage Ministry. They're going to be at a table out there in the lobby, and um, you can stop and talk to them and say, hey, tell me more. I want to know about that. But this video really gives a picture of what Grace Marriage is about, so I want you to catch this. I practiced law for 22 years and saw firsthand the consequences of divorce. I saw the pain, the bitterness, the sadness, the relationships between father and son ending, the relationship between husband and wife ending, and the decades-long consequences that occur. Statistics show there's a one out of two chance that your marriage will die. However, statistics also show that if you'll proactively invest in your marriage and you'll spend one-on-one -on -one time together and you will date one another and you will look big picture together and you'll work on issues while they're manageable, the chance of your marriage ending are almost zero. My name is Brad Rhodes. My wife, Marilyn, and I founded Grace Marriage to help couples protect, enrich, and grow their marriages. We found that if we could engage couples to be proactive and intentional in working on their marriage, it could have a profound impact on the marriage and the home. Does life seem too busy? Does it seem overwhelming? Is it hard to keep up? As a result, is it hard to find one-on-one -on -one time to spend with your spouse to really enjoy marriage and make it great? 
we all realize that if you want something great, you have to take care of it and you have to invest in it. If you plant a garden and you don't do anything with it and you just hope it goes well, it doesn't. If you don't take care of a car, it breaks down. Would you like a better marriage? Would you like a better atmosphere in your home? Would you like to have more intimacy, more pleasure, and more joy in your marriage? So at Grace Marriage, we're asking you to take a proactive approach. Take six hours every 90 days and take a big picture look at your marriage and make decisions what you want to accomplish in your family. Then be proactive during those 90 days to live life consistently with your biblical priorities. So step forward, invest in your marriage, work on your marriage, richly enjoy your marriage for the glory of God, the protection of your family, and the enjoyment of your spouse. Step forward, don't wait, sign up today and invest in your marriage. We have a great opportunity for you for Grace Marriage this year. Due to the fact that COVID and some couples have moved away and not participating this year, we have some open slots and we have some extra funding to be able to help people uh, get involved and participate in Grace Marriage. We know COVID has put a major stress on the home and the marriage. And so for these two sessions, May 22 and then um, August the 28th, you can participate for no cost. No cost. And I think it's a beautiful thing, a great way to try this out and say, oh, I keep doing this in my marriage. And so you can sign up. All the information is on the website, but you must sign up and register because we need to know who's coming so we're prepared and have the right materials and the right amount of food. So uh, we greatly encourage you to check out Grace Marriage. Again, talk to Mike and Sarah Brown out in the lobby. You say, I got questions. I want to know more about this. What does it take? How do I get involved? And all the information is on the website. Open your Bibles to the book of Romans to the letter of Romans, whether that be your Bible that's on your phone or you got the paper Bible, open that up. Psalm 119, 105 says that God's word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The letter of Romans is a bright, shining light or lamp. John 8, 32 says that the truth of God's word sets us free. The truth of God's word sets us free. Romans teaches us, I think, the most liberating of all truths. When you start to understand this great letter that we've been walking in the last uh, uh, eight, ten weeks, you start to understand this letter, there's a lot of release that takes place in terms of freedom in your life. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that God's word is sharp and piercing like a sword. The letter of Romans fulfills this verse. And we've done a lot of, um, of the sword piercing the last so many weeks. And now we're coming on the other side where we get to the, the good news. The book of Romans, it may be the most influential book in all the Bible, but sometimes it can be one of the most neglected or even most misunderstood books. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, here's what the gospel is. He says the gospel is that Christ died for our sins and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. So if someone were to ask you, what is the gospel? A simple, clear answer. Christ died for your sins and my sins. He was put in the grave for you and me, and he was raised on the third day. It means he defeated death and he defeated sin. That's the gospel message. Now, if you were to open up the book of Acts and go through the book of Acts, it shows us reality 
of that death and that resurrection, which is very important for us to understand. But then you go into the book of Romans, and it focuses a little bit on his death, but it focuses a whole lot more on that part for our sin, which a lot of times we don't want to talk about. A lot of times we don't want to even think about that I have sin. What does it mean that he focuses on that? What that means is for sinners and for believers, for those who have yet chosen Christ and those who have chosen Christ but still sin, well, this book starts explaining what does that mean and how do we deal with it. It has the ability to convict the sinner and it has the ability, of a, the ability to motivate the Christian. So those who don't know Christ has the ability to say, oh, I want to know Christ. And those who say, I know Christ, my hope and prayer is that this is a motivating book. That you go, I want to know him more. I want to go share him. I want to tell the message of this, this book to other people. Look at what some theologians have said about Romans. Leon Morris said, it's commonly agreed that the epistle to Romans is one of the greatest Christian writings. Its power has been demonstrated again and again at critical points in the history of the Christian church. Henry Theason said, this is in in every sense, the greatest of the epistles of Paul, if not the greatest book in the New Testament. William Newell says Roman is probably the greatest book in the Bible. So you want to understand Christ, you understand what his plan was and why he came. Study Romans. Read it. Barclay Newman says if, if the apostle Paul had written nothing else, which we know he's written over half the New Testament, but if he's written nothing else, he would still be recognized as one of the outstanding Christian thinkers of all time on the basis of this letter alone. So today, we move into the good news of this letter. Can I get an amen? Because we've had enough bad news the last several weeks talking about the wrath of God. Before we do, though, let's do a real quick review. You're like, wait, don't even review all that stuff. Just real fast. Paul begins this letter with basically, hi, hey, I'm Paul. I'm the writer of the letter. I'm writing to you about Jesus. He says, I'm writing to you to encourage you. I'm writing to you. I want to pray for you. I want to see you. I want to preach to you. And so it's a general opening, kind of a, hello, we're friends in Christ. No, I've never really met you face to face, but we both know Christ, and so let me encourage you in Christ. I'm sending this letter so that you will fully understand the gospel, that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. He says, that's good news. That's the gospel. And Paul's like, I want you to understand it. And very early in chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, here's my purpose, for I am not ashamed of what? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Not ashamed, for it is the power of God for salvation for who? For all people, for everyone who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the apostle Paul is like, listen, here's what I want you to understand. I'm not going to be ashamed. I'm not embarrassed about this gospel. I'm not embarrassed about the fact that Jesus died. He was buried. He rose again. I know that's good, good news when people understand it. So I'm going to preach it. I'm going to teach it. I'm going to help people understand it because this sets people free. And Paul's like, I hope as you read it, as you understand this letter, I hope you come to the point where you're not ashamed either. That's my prayer for us as a church. I pray as we continue this journey, your, your, uh, your spiritual muscles strengthen. Your evangelism muscles just kind of get lit on fire. If there's a spark or ember in you, I pray that this blows on you and in a flame of, of excitement and faith grows. And you're like, I'm going to share this gospel. I'm going to be like Paul. I'm not going to be ashamed of it. I'm going to tell people about Jesus. And so then Paul 
says, after here's my goal, he launches right into this, this long uh, exposition, so to speak, of all the bad stuff. The stuff we talk about, the wrath of God. We talk to, he talks about how the depraved Gentile society, those people who say, I don't need God, those who are not Jews, those who don't care about God, well, you're going to face the wrath of God. He talks about the moralists, the people who think, well, I'm good, I'm better than you. Hey, you're going to face the wrath of God. He talks about the self-confident Jewish person, the person who's religious. I follow all the rules. Hey, you're going to face the wrath of God. And then last week we talked, just as if you didn't miss it, or didn't get everybody, he says, you know, the entire human race, you're all guilty. And Paul took us to court last week, and he laid out 13-count indictment of why we're guilty of sin. And time we got done doing chapters 1, 2, and 3, all the way to verse 20 of chapter 3, I don't know about you, but I feel kind of whipped. I'm like, Paul, can you stop? It's kind of like when a mom and dad have a conversation with their child about the things they've been done wrong. And I'm guilty when you sit down and you talk and you're like, well, let me tell you a little bit more. And let me keep talking. Where you talk them to death? That's kind of what Paul's been doing. It's like, Paul, you have talked me to death. I understand. I'm a sinner. I'm awful. I'm horrible. I deserve wrath. I should go to hell. Goodness gracious, can we move on? We are today. Today. Paul's main idea is we're all guilty. And as you read this letter... It feels like you're in a courtroom. Doesn't it feel like you're in a courtroom? Here we are. We're sitting in a courtroom, and all the different components of the court are taking place. The judge has something to do. There's some people who are testifying. There's a defense attorney, and there's a prosecuting attorney, and we're being put on trial. And so today, we are tackling what's known as the doctrine of justification in theology terms. In case you wonder, what, what are we talking about? If you're putting it in theological terms, that's what we're talking about. We're tackling what some believe to be the most important text in all of Scripture. And I must say, as I've studied these five verses this week that we're going to tackle, I believe it's probably true. Because if you can get these five verses, if you're here today and you're on a search trying to understand Jesus, trying to seek out your purpose of life, just trying to get all that figured out, you can understand these five verses, and you can let these verses go from being a head thing to a heart thing. Your life could be dramatically changed today. For those who live in Christ, you're like, I made a commitment to Christ, but sometimes I settle into the same old, same old routine, or I've gone to that law-based thing, here's what I do. My Christianity is just kind of, ah. You get these verses, can ignite a whole brand new fire in you for living, if you can understand these verses. And so I want us to think about this in terms of this courtroom idea and think about some of the components within a courtroom. And I want us to address five components in this courtroom. What happens in a courtroom? Well, there's always a crime that has been committed. You're not going to go to a courtroom unless some kind of crime has taken place. And Paul says, here's the crime. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're like, Paul, you already told us that in the first three chapters. But Paul's, let me just remind you, here's the crime. All have sinned. That means lawlessness. It's talking about a, an inward attitude of rebellion and an outward disrespect for God's laws and directions and an outward act of breaking God's laws. And Paul's like, inwardly and outwardly, all have sinned. In human court, though, only the outward acts are on trial. In human court... If you take somebody's life, you're going to be put on trial. In human court, if you physically steal somebody else's good, you could be put on trial. But in God's court, you even think, I hate my brother. He says, that's just like murder. You're on trial. 
You even think about taking your neighbor's goods. Wait, that's an inward attitude. That's going on trial. So in God's court, sinners are charged for what's going on on the inside and what's going on the outside. And he says, all have fallen short of the glory of God. This is referring to the state or the condition in which we exist as the consequences of sinning. We've fallen short of God's glory. It's talking about how we don't measure up and how something is missing in our lives. What is that something? The glory of God. Why does the glory of God miss? Because sin gets in the way. The glory of God is talking about the holiness that is supposed to be shining forth from our lives. See, when we walk in Christ in a relationship, there should be a shining or a virtue of living in his image, and we are supposed to be godly. And Paul's talking about, hey, that's not shining so brightly. In other words, we are commanded to glorify God, but because of our sinfulness, our light doesn't shine so bright. You ever been around a light bulb? It either goes completely out, some light bulbs slowly dim, and they just kind of slowly fade, and sometimes we don't even notice it happen in our lives. That's what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about because of sin in your life, it's either out or it's not shining bright. And Paul has reminded us that we are all in trouble with the law. We have a legal problem. We're guilty of sinning and falling short of being a person who shows and shine God's glory, and we're facing a maximum penalty for our sin. Paul says that's the crime. Sin puts us in a state of debt. In other words, we owe God the debt of eternal punishment. And Paul's already laid all this out. What is that eternal punishment? Eternally separated from God in a place that is called hell. Paul's like, there's the crime. The evidence against us is overwhelming. It can't be hidden from God. In other words, we're sitting in the courtroom and we're in trouble. And what do you do when you're in trouble? Even if you're not in a courtroom. You're in trouble maybe with a boss because you did something wrong. You're in trouble as a child growing up because you did something wrong. You broke the law. What do we do? We hope for acquittal, don't we? We, we hope to be let off of the crime. Have you ever had a crime or a situation you've done in your life and you're like, oh, man, I hope I get out of this one? Hoping for acquittal, hoping not to pay the penalty. It was early in our marriage when Brian and I were living up in Finley, Ohio, and I was a youth pastor. We went to a convention in Cincinnati we had to get back because church was the next day. So on a Saturday night, we were driving back late, and it was about 1 in the morning. And we had a, a new Mazda 929. It wasn't brand new. It was used, but new to us. you know. And I thought it was a pretty spiffy car. So I thought, well, let's test out the speed on this thing on the highway, I-75, driving back. And so I was having fun driving this nice you know, Mazda 929, which they don't even have on the market anymore because it was kind of a junky car. <laughs> That's a whole other story. But I'm driving down the road. And all of a sudden, those lights flash in the back, you know, the, the state trooper lights, the bright lights. And I'm thinking, oh, no. Let's be honest. It may have been more than, oh, no, but we don't need any more description. I'm like, Lord, Lord, please help me. I was going 87 and a 65 because back then, 70 didn't exist. You weren't allowed to go 70. 87 and a 65, and he pulls me over, and he says, you know, asks his general questions. Where are you going? What are you doing? Da, da, da. Okay, I need your license. And I need your proof of registration. And he goes back and sits in his car. I always wonder, do you ever wonder, what are they doing back there? They take an awful long time. They have computers, but back there, I think they just want to watch you sweat. And you're sitting here, and I'm talking to Brian. I'm like, oh, I hope we get out of this. Oh, I could be in a lot of trouble. I'm wanting to be set free. I'm hoping for that. I believe that's everyone's hope when you're in trouble. 
When your kid gets in trouble, they're hoping, Mom and Dad, please don't punish me. Mom and Dad, please let me off. Or those who are school teachers or those who are principals, administration, a kid comes to your office. What is it? Oh, I hope I get off of that. I don't want to be in trouble. Oh, no, I've been caught. Please let me go free. Being right the law means that we are being in a state of righteousness. And righteousness basically means satisfying the requirements of the law. That's what it means. Going strictly by the rules of the law, the only way to be acquitted then is to be innocent. <laughs> but we're guilty. What am I supposed to do with that? And we still want to seek acquittal for that. Or at least we want to escape the punishment that we deserve. Officer, I'm guilty. I'm sorry, I was speeding. Please don't punish me. I mean, 87 and a 65, that could have been a very healthy ticket. It could have been, hey, you're, you're crazy out of control here. I'm going to put you in jail for a night. Could have been a lot of different things. Is there a way this can happen? Is there some way we can make up for our sins and avoid the consequences of sin? As sinners, the only way we can be in a state of righteousness, according to the law, is to suffer the full penalties deserved by our sins, and that's eternity in hell, according to the law. And the only way we can satisfy the requirements of the law we have to ask the question then, is our case hopeless? This is what Paul's dealing with. Do I live in a case where I am absolutely hopeless? And Paul would say, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Praise God. There's another kind of righteousness. There's another way to be right with the law in a way that is different from anything that the law can provide. Romans 3.21, Paul says, but now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What's he talking about? This is outside or apart from the law. In other words, yes, there's the law, but there's another way to do this. Manifested just means it's been made known. How? Through the gospel. What's the gospel? Jesus what? What is it? Help me out. What did Jesus do? Jesus lived a man. He died. He's buried. And he rose again. And Paul says, that's outside the law. But that's been revealed to us. Apart from the law means apart from the law system. Apart from the law system, there's a way to be acquitted. The law system cannot bring sinners into a state of righteousness except by applying the law penalty. But the grace system, the grace system can. Have you ever heard of the grace system? You ever thought about the grace system? That's why I love grace marriage. Grace marriage is, how do I bring a grace system into my marriage versus a law system? See, a law system in a marriage is, you did this to me, and so I'm going to behave this way. You said that to me, so I'm going to reply with this. You didn't do that, and so I'm not going to do that. Where a grace system says, yeah, you didn't do that, but I still love you. You said this, yeah, I'm going to look past what you just said. I'm going to work in a grace-type system. The grace system allows us to be right with the law without having to suffer the penalty, even though we have sinned. Even though we have sinned, the judge can still justify us. Can still justify us. Romans 3, 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift. Justification is a gift that God gives us to us. To be justified means having the judge say, no penalty for you. No penalty. It doesn't mean, hey, you're not guilty. It doesn't mean you didn't commit the act. 
It just means you're not going to receive the penalty. Or it could be, I declare you to be right with the law just as you are. To justify is a legal term. It's the opposite of condemn. To justify means the judge declares us righteous. He does not make us righteous. He declares you are now righteous. Now think about the courtroom. Again, you have a crime. You have a hope for acquittal. Well, who's doing a lot of talking for you? The lawyer. Typically, the only way to be justified is to have a great lawyer. Every criminal wants a great lawyer. Who's the great lawyer can stand up and fight for? When you're in trouble with the law, you need a good lawyer, one who can kind of get you off of the crime, one who's going to be able to convince the judge, listen, my person that's on defense right here, let me just tell you why they're really not guilty. You need a lawyer who can say to you, don't worry about it. I've got it covered. You, you need a lawyer. You want them to say, you leave everything to me. Go on about your business. I've got it all figured out. You want to you hear a lawyer who says, I will handle your case. I will take care of it. You want a lawyer who says, I will make sure you don't serve any time, and I, and I am your only hope. And you want to have a lawyer that has that kind of confidence who will stand up and fight for you. And the only one who can do that is Jesus. When it comes to our sin, the only one who can do that is Jesus. Romans 3.22, his righteousness, his righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Verse 24 says, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is Christ Jesus. In other words, Jesus is our defense attorney. He's our advocate. The only way sinners can beat the rap, so to speak. The only way sinners can be set free of sin is to turn their case over completely to Jesus. Verse 22 says what? Through faith in Jesus Christ. So I turn it over to Jesus. I'm a sinner. I'm a crackpot. I'm messed up. I failed a bunch. I put my faith in you. I'm going to hand it over to you. I'm going to let you take care of this issue. I don't know about you, but that gets pretty exciting when you start thinking about it. Start thinking about it. No matter how guilty you are as your lawyer, Jesus absolutely guarantees that you will not serve any time. Wait a minute, Brian. You're telling me that I cheated on my wife some years ago, and if I put my heart and my faith in Jesus, that's done away with? Yep. You're telling me, Brian, that I have an addiction to, you fill in the blank, and you're telling me if I put my faith in Jesus, I'm going to be set free from that? Yep. You're telling me that I cheated on my business and I stole from my business partner or from my company, and you're telling me I put my faith in Jesus? That sin is done away with? Yep. You're telling me that my mind and my heart go into places that I don't like, and I think about things that I don't like to think about, and I even envision doing things I don't want to do that I know won't honor God, but I know that thought life is not even honoring to God. You're telling me I put my faith in Jesus that sin is done away with? Yep. You mean I don't have to fulfill this list and do all that? Nope. Paul says you put your heart in Jesus. You put your faith in Jesus. And he guarantees you that the judge will justify you. Justify you. Now as we continue thinking about the components in the courtroom, we must think about the strategy. Any good defense attorney is going to say, okay, i got to come up with a strategy. What did you do? What are you being charged with? Why are you being charged with it? 
Now let's think about a strategy. How does Jesus, our lawyer, accomplish this of getting us justified? What's his strategy? If you were on trial for a crime, murder, theft, stealing, whatever it is, you would have to decide how are we going to approach this case, especially if you're actually guilty. If you're actually guilty, the lawyer would be thinking, well, what strategy will get you set free or at least have the judge declare no penalty for you? Ideas he may come up with is, well, let's bring a whole bunch of character witnesses. Man, you're a really good dude. Or you're a really good, good lady. I'm sure all your friends will be able to testify about how good you are, and that will influence the judge. It, it might be, well, let's throw out the insanity case. You know, yeah, you did it. You're guilty. But with insanity, I'm sure they're going to let you off. It, it might be it was a self-defense situation. You had to do what you had to do. It might be, can we bribe, bribe the jury? I mean, all kinds of crazy stuff. Maybe we'll lie our way through it, but we're going to somehow find our way to get through it because we're being charged with something. Here's the deal. Jesus, our defense attorney, before the heavenly judge, has a strategy and an approach to the problem that he guarantees will be successful. 100% of the time, guarantees success. The strategy Jesus uses is very different from anything in the law system can provide. Jesus' plan will never fail. It gets us around the law system and guarantees that we will be set free even though we're guilty. I'd venture to say, if I were to have you raise your hand in here and say, hey, has anyone here never sinned? None of us would dare raise our hand. Which means, you know what? We all sit in this room guilty. We saw all sit in this room with the same problem. So here's the strategy. It's called Grace. It's called the grace system. It's called the grace defense. Grace is a way of handling our legal problem. This is the way of getting the judge to justify us and declaring no penalty for you. When justified, the judge isn't saying not guilty because all are guilty of sin. He's saying there's no penalty for you. The penalty has already been taken care of. In Romans 8, which we're going to get to sometime down the road, says there is no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. How does Jesus, our defense attorney, pull this off? How does he do it? How does he do it? He pays off the judge. That's what he does. He pays off the judge. And he does it with what? With his own resources. That's called a grace defense. You ask, well, how does that work? Look at verse 24 again. And are justified by his grace as a gift. A gift is what? It's free through the redemption that is Christ Jesus. The payment is an act of redemption, setting us free and paying the price. What is the ransom price? Jesus' own blood. His life. And so when we take communion here in a little bit, that's not just a ceremony. That's not just an act. That's celebrating that he paid the price for you and me. Who's it paid to? Paid to God the Father. He says, God, I'll take care of it. I'll pay the price. Here it is. I'm paying my life. Matthew 20, 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his what? His life as a ransom for just the Jews? For many, 
That many means entirety. That many means all people before and coming after. Ephesians 1, Paul says, in him we have redemption through his blood. How did his blood be shed? He had to give his life. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. This is described as an act of propitiation. Say the word propitiation. It's a fun word. You know, we just walk around throwing that one around, all right? Hey, have you been propitiated? <laughs> been walking you through propitiation lately? Sacrifice of atonement. Verse 25 says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. To propitiate literally means to turn aside wrath by means of an offering. You are guilty. You deserve death. You deserve hell, the wrath of God. But Jesus being our propitiation has turned that aside, has pushed it away, has said you won't receive that. You don't have to receive that. All that can be done away with because Jesus becomes the offering that turns the wrath away. Jesus is an offering. Jesus, our lawyer, accomplishes that by himself. His offering of himself is on the cross, pays the full penalty of our sins. Now, here's a hard thing for us to think about. If you're on trial and you're going to face a major financial burden by being charged guilty or you're going to be put in jail, if your lawyer were to stand up and say, hey, listen, I'll pay the penalty. Hey, listen, I'll go to jail for you. You would think, no way, I've just died and gone to heaven. You have to have a chance to die and go to heaven. Because Jesus died for you. You put your faith in him. His suffering in both his human and his divine natures was the equivalent of turning in hell for the whole human race. See, he's not only our defense advocate, he's the one who's offering that turns away the wrath. That's the propitiation itself by him offering his life. This is his strategy, the strategy of grace. It's a grace defense. This keeps us from having to suffer the penalty. We don't have to walk through the pain or the suffering. It works every single time. 1 John 2, 2 says he is a propitiation for our sins. He turns away the wrath for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Are you part of the whole world? Am I part of the whole world? Is your neighbor part of the whole world? this state part of the whole world, this country part of the whole world, people who have black skin or brown skin or white skin, people who speak different languages, part of the whole world, people who think differently, people who are on the Democratic side, people who are on the Republican side, people who are on the Independent side, people who, who don't see things eye to eye about the mask or no mask or COVID or shot or no shot, are they all part of the whole world? So Paul's getting to Paul's like, this sin has been done away with. 1 John 4.10 says, in this, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Turn away wrath. Turn it away. Here's the big question. Can you and I afford such a lawyer? Can we actually afford to have a lawyer? Won't he cost me a lot of money? Won't he cost me a lot of my life? Yes and no. His services are free because grace is a free gift. 
However, he requires that we trust him completely to take care of your case. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who what? Believe. Verse 25, to be received by faith. So what do we do? We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the death, the burial, and the resurrection. We believe. And so what is it? It'll cost us everything. And that means I have to turn over my life to him. That means you must accept him to be your Lord, which means he's the owner. You're not just my Savior. You're my, my Lord and Savior, is what the Scripture says. In other words, you're in charge. You give your life completely to him, all of your life, which brings us to the last component of the courtroom, which is the judge. What does the judge think about all this? What are God's thoughts? Can I tell you something? This was his idea. That's his idea. The judge having the plan and the idea, look at verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, that means him just looking ahead going, I know I'm going to deal with this. He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and a justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It was God himself, the judge himself, who sets Jesus forth as a propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for you and me. He had a plan to set us free. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's all God's plan. Redemption through the blood of Jesus. That's the only strategy that allows God to be true to both sides of his nature. To both sides. What do you mean about both sides? His nature of being just. Because the requirements of the law, the penalty paid, are satisfied by Jesus. And his nature then has set us free to justify anyone who takes on Jesus as the defense lawyer. This text in Romans 3, 21 through 26, it's at the heart, the core of Romans. But not only Romans, probably the entire Bible. Leon Morris, in his commentary, says possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. All the history books, all the math books, all the reading books, all the English books, all the, the commentaries ever been written, all the things written about Jesus, the entire Bible, many believe this is the most important paragraph. And I believe it to be true as well. Let's get back to the state trooper for a moment who pulled me over on I-75. Took me off, took that driver's license and an insurance card, went back to his car and do whatever he's doing. I was sitting next to Brianna. I can swear I was begging and crying and sweating. We were in a suit because of the convention we went to and I was sweating. I was like, oh, I hope he lets me off. Oh, honey, I'm going to afford this ticket. She's thinking, you're a crazy nut. I can't believe you're driving that fast. You know, there's a little bit of bickering going on. And I'm sweating profusely the whole time thinking, what is going to happen? What is going to happen? Please let me off, officer. He came back to the window. And I put it down. He said, son, I was about 24 years old. Son, you need to slow down and be more careful. Have a nice night. Set me free. You know what I did? Thank you, sir. 
put the window up, took down the road at 65 miles an hour, and the music was blaring as we had a party in the car. I'm free! I'm free! No ticket! No jail! Oh, honey, we don't have to pay anything! We should be having a party. We should wake up every day. If you are in Christ, you should wake up and say, praise God, I am free. Now, I don't know what kind of junk I'm going to deal with today. I don't know what kind of sin I'm going to deal with today. I don't know any of that, but I'm having a party, and I'm turning the music up, and I'm going to celebrate God because I am free. No need to sweat. No need to worry. No need to be nervous about life, going, oh, no, I did this. Oh, no, I did that. God's going to get me. No, you're free. Even the sins that you forget to confess, you're free, totally free. You go to the cross and you say, I'm free. You meet Jesus in faith. I'm free. And so I want to give you an invitation today. Maybe today you're here and you're like, this is kind of new news to me. It's not really how I understand the Bible. I'd like to have that freedom. Here in a moment we're going to sing and receive our communion and I invite you to step to the cross. I'll be back there. A couple of people from our prayer team are there. We love to talk to you about what does it mean to have this relationship with Jesus? How do you put your faith in him and begin that conversation with you and help you go down that journey together? You may say, I did that a long time ago, but I never understood it this way. Boy, I need some help on the journey. We'd love to meet you as well. Come to the cross. Receive Jesus at the cross as you partake in your community today. What a reminder we have. This is not just some act we do each week. If you need communion, you feel free to get up there at the tables in the back room back there. It's not just something we do just out of action or just out of memory. This is, this is us remembering every week we are free in Christ. This is us remembering our sin. It's all been justified by Jesus Christ. So today, don't partake lately. Today, you need help. You want to make a decision for Christ. Go to the cross. Father God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I just want to say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for justifying us. Thank you that we don't have to face the penalty of our, of our sin challenge. Thank you. God, we honor you. We praise you today. Thank you.